good to be together again, is it not, as the people of God? I'm going to see if you can identify what is happening from this description that I'm about to give you. The airport is being closed to all traffic from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. You find that major roads are closed with many police and security professionals guarding entrances. Viewing areas are carefully marked off and secured. The fancy hotel has been closed to the public, a red carpet rolled out with entrance only by permission after appropriate screening. And there are helicopters patrolling the area. What's going on? Somebody very important is coming to town, right? So whether it's the president, a visiting dignitary, whatever, there's an important person coming and the area is being prepared for her arrival, the Queen of England, perhaps. The greater the person, the greater the preparation that is made ahead of time. And the focus is not on the preparation, is it? But on the person whose coming is being prepared for. And that is the situation we see in today's passage in Luke chapter 3, a focus on who is coming. And so we're going to see this in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Here Mark, or Luke marks the transition between chapter 2, where we read of Jesus' conception, birth, early infancy, and young childhood, up to 12 years of age, and the rest of chapter 3, which describes Jesus' baptism in the beginning of his ministry at about 30 years of age. So just before we dig in here to Luke chapter 3, uh, I'd like us to pray this short prayer from Psalm 119. Open our eyes this morning, Father, that we may see wondrous things out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20, which we're going to read. And I'm going to read that chapter. And as I do so, I ask you to open your heart to begin to hear what God would say to you this morning. This is the infallible, inerrant word that God has given to us. Let's uh, read along. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As, is, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? 
And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and proclamation of his word this morning. Luke starts this passage with two very interesting observations. Listen carefully to what Luke is really saying as I read verses 1 and 2 again. I find this to be truly amazing and stunning if you look at it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is a who's who of the first century Roman world. And Luke is not just giving us the geopolitical context here of who's who, but he's telling us that the word of God did not come to the top government leaders. The word of God did not come to the top religious leaders. The word of God did not come to the centers of wealth, power, and influence, to Rome, the capital of the greatest empire the world had ever known, or to Jerusalem, the city established by God himself as the center of Jewish worship. But the word of God came to John in the wilderness, to a common, ordinary person, in a common, ordinary place. I'm going to pause just for a moment here. Mark, is it possible to have the slides on the, these back monitors? That would be helpful. Thank you. The word of God came to John in the wilderness, to a common, ordinary person in a common, ordinary place. Secondly, the word of God came to was a phrase that would have been very familiar to the Jewish people. This statement, the word of God came to, is an indication that God is now speaking through a prophet, revealing something about himself and his activity. The last time these words were uttered were about 460 years prior to this to the prophet Malachi. This is a long time for God to not be speaking to his people. And now, don't miss what Luke is saying here. The word of God came to John. God is speaking again. Now there are quite a few sermons I think we could get out of this passage, 
But join me as we spend some time focusing at what word of God John was bringing. And we're going to look at this in five areas. First, the word of God came preparing. Luke here quotes from Isaiah 40, written over 400 years earlier, and applies Isaiah 40 to John as the voice crying in the wilderness. Look at verse 4. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John's purpose was to prepare the people for the coming of the one who God had promised long ago. Something big was being announced like all of that, the motorcade and all the preparations we saw before, something big was being announced. The Savior was finally coming to rescue their broken lives. And in verse 6, Luke continues with Isaiah, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And what was that preparation? Well, we see that in verse 3. John came to the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John wanted them to see that their sins have separated them from God, and he wanted them to know that forgiveness of those sins was available. The Apostle Paul describes John's baptism this way in Acts 19.4. Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. John was preparing people's hearts and minds for Jesus' coming because it is only by faith in Jesus that sins could be forgiven, a relationship with God restored, and the hope of eternal life secured. So the word of God came to John preparing. Well, the word of God came to John warning. Look in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers... As John's activity and preaching becomes known, the crowds gather to be baptized by him, and he calls them a brood of vipers. And many of these, we find out in Matthew 3, were even the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Hardly a way to make friends and influence people, calling them a brood of vipers. But what's a viper? A viper is a poisonous snake. And why this? Well, I believe it's because he was saying their religious beliefs are poisonous to a life-giving relationship to God. He was calling them a brood of vipers because their religious beliefs were poisonous to a life-giving relationship with God. And John warns them of two deadly beliefs here. First, he says in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. You see, they were coming to be baptized by him with the idea of performing this religious ceremony, but without any expectation that their lives would actually have to change. Repentance means a change of heart and mind and behavior. John warns them that a relationship with God is not based on doing religious rituals, but on genuine repentance that bears the fruit of life change. The second poisonous belief that they had, we see there, as he continues in verse 8, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Here they were resting the security of their relationship with God on the fact that they were the special, chosen by God, Jewish people who were the descendants of Abraham. John warns warns the people that their religious heritage is inadequate. 
He says that God can turn stones into children of Abraham, if that's what was necessary. He tells them that the time of God's judgment is near when all trees that are not bearing the fruit of genuine repentance will be cut down. John was warning them that their present religious beliefs were poisonous to a life-giving relationship with God. So the word of God came to John preparing and warning and now transforming. As John points these things out to the people, if you look at verse 10, the crowds ask him, well, what then shall we do? If the way we've been living and the way we're believing is not adequate, what shall we do? Great question, right? So John tells them what genuine repentance, what genuine change of life looks like. For everyone, he says, be willing to share with others in need what God has given you. And then the tax collectors come and say, well, what shall we do? Well, tax collectors were those who worked for the hated Roman occupiers and had a reputation of collecting a little bit more than they should to line their own pockets. So what does John tell them? Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Then the soldiers said, what about us? What should we do? Well, soldiers, uh, apparently from this passage, felt they weren't getting paid enough. So they would improve their income by force of their position. Imagine that I'm a Roman soldier, sword strapped to my side, shield slung over my back, spear in hand. Hey, you. Yeah, you with a loaf of bread in your hands. Come here, you're under arrest. Don't give me that. I saw you steal that bread from the vendor. Nah, you didn't pay for it. I saw it. My buddy saw it. Don't argue. We're going down to jail. We'll let the judge decide. I don't care where you have to go or who you have at home. Come with me. Tell you what. I'm a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Five shekels apiece. We'll call it a day and we'll forget this thing ever happened. It's too much, you say? All right, down to the jail with you. We'll let the judge decide. Who are they going to believe, us or you? Yeah, I thought you'd see it that way. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate the donation. Have a good day. And be careful the next time. Don't let this happen again. What does John say to them? Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. John is teaching them that genuine faith in the living God will transform their lives in very practical ways where they live and work. Now, as I say this, there's a very important word of caution that is necessary here. John is not saying that they must do these things to become right with God. He is saying that these things will be the fruit of a transformed life that has already been made right with God. They are the fruits of repentance. Life change does not come from me trying to be a better person. Life change comes from me being transformed by God's work in my life, the fruits of repentance. So the word of God came to John, pointing, warning, transforming, and pointing. In verse 15, the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John. Well, for centuries, the Jews have been waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the one whom God promised would one day come to save them from sin and oppression. 
And as excitement builds around John's ministry, questions begin to stir in the hearts of the people and they begin wondering, is this finally the Christ, the one we have been waiting for all these years? Well, what is John's answer? His answer is no, I am not the Christ. I am the one who has come to point you to Jesus, who is the Christ. I am nothing. He is mightier than I. I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He will be the one to bring final judgment, separating the wheat from the chaff. And in one place, John tells his followers, he, Jesus, must increase, but I, John, must decrease. John is not the Christ, but he points to him. He points to Jesus as the Christ. So the word of God came to John, preparing, warning, transport, transforming, and pointing. And then we see the word of God came to John, reproving. We see that word in verse 19. That word reprove means to accuse of error, to accuse of wrongdoing. John was direct and hard with the people who were coming to him. For example, remember, brood of vipers. But not to be mean, but because they had to recognize the true seriousness of their condition to be able to receive the help that they needed. Many of you know that I worked as a medical doctor, and that work often meant telling people the hard truth about their health. Not because I enjoyed making people feel bad, but because I wanted them to take appropriate action to get better. Such reproofs are good news. You look in verse 18, with many other exhortations, he, John, preached good news to the people. These reproofs are good news. But not everyone responds well to having their wrongs pointed out. I don't know about you, but I'm generally not very happy about someone telling me that I'm wrong about something. Thank you so much for telling me that I just made a huge mess of this. I was just hoping someone would come along and point out how wrong I have been in this area of my life. Thank you, thank you so much. Anybody else there? We see a good response to having the wrong pointed out in verse 10, right? What then shall we do? But here in verses 19 and 20, Herod responds to John's reproof by throwing John in prison and, not long after this, executing him. Back to being a doctor, I still remember vividly a patient who for a year repeatedly ignored my advice to follow up on her abnormal chest x-ray with fatal consequences as she died of a lung cancer that probably could have been cured if we had dealt with it when it had been first discovered. In Herod's case, not only did he ignore the doctor's advice, he executed the doctor. He did not want to hear the truth about his life that John was bringing, and in reality, that God was bringing through John. There's an important lesson here I feel compelled to mention briefly, and this is one of those topics that could make for another sermon, but I think it's important to mention. 
John was faithful to do exactly what God had called him to do. And it is that very faithfulness that landed him in jail. Because God's word was not appreciated by someone who had the power to do something about it. Faithfulness to God does not make you immune to trouble. In fact, faithfulness to God may be the cause of your trouble. And at first glance, it looks like our story has come full circle, that those in power have now had the final word. In verses 1 and 2, we saw that the word of God bypassed Caesar, Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, Caiaphas, and came to John. But here we see that Herod, the man with the power, has the last word and throws John in prison and then executes him. The word of God that came to John is silenced. Or is it? Is it? Remember Isaiah 40 that Luke referred to in verses 4 to 6 and that Vernell read earlier? The part about the voice crying in the wilderness? I'd invite you to keep your finger here in Luke and turn over to Isaiah 40. It's after Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. So Isaiah is after the Psalms, a few books. I'm going to read the part of Isaiah 40 that immediately follows the section that Luke quoted. And the people would have been aware of, this, of these verses, those when they heard Isaiah 40 being read by Luke. I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Herod refused to yield to the loving, corrective truth of God's word and tried to silence God's message and God's messenger. But the truth is, Herod, you are grass that withers. Herod, you are the flower that fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. The word of our God will stand forever. So the word of God came to John, preparing, warning, transforming, pointing, and reproving. Well, how about you and me? Let's see how the word of God, the Bible, does these different things in our lives. So the word of God prepares you for Jesus coming into your life. Are you an unbeliever? Are you one who has not embraced Jesus or even one who has actively rejected him? The word of God that I'm proclaiming to you right now is preparing your heart to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And it's very simple. Just tell God that you're a sinner separated from him for eternity. Say to God that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life and ask God to forgive you and to help you live for him for now, from now on. But are you a believer in whom God is desiring to teach you more about him? The word of God prepares your heart to see and receive Jesus. It challenges your incomplete view of who God is. It prepares your heart to want to know God better and to walk with him 
more closely. The Word of God prepares. The Word of God also warns. It warns you not to trust in cheap and ineffective substitutes for Jesus' death and resurrection. Don't be like the crowds who try to earn your way into God's favor by your good works and religious activities, such as coming to church, praying, being baptized, reading the Bible, taking communion, being active and serving others. Or those who rely on their religious history. Well, I'm okay with God because my father was a minister. My brother is a priest. My great-grandfather was a missionary to Africa. I'm okay with God because I and my family are part of a church that has been around for a long time. John says, be warned. These are outward appearances of devotion to God, but without the life change that comes from a genuine relationship with God. Well, the word of God transforms. Transforms you to become more and more like Jesus. A genuine faith in Jesus will be seen in the change of your life over time. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, The Bible is not the word of men, but is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This is not just a book that we read. This is the word of God to us that Paul says, when we read it and meditate on it, we ingest it, it does a work in us to transform us, to change our perspectives and to change our lives It is at work to transform us to be like Jesus. Well, the Word of God also points you to Jesus as the only Savior. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says this in her prologue to the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, There are lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. If you want to see more of Jesus, you, may f- you must find him where he is revealed, and that is in the Bible. The whole Bible, all of the Word of God points to Jesus, Old Testament and New Testament. Now, just reading the Bible is not a guarantee that you will see Jesus, but I can guarantee you that you will not see him without the reading of the Bible. And I would encourage you not to just read books about the Bible. Devotional books by human authors about the Bible may be helpful, but they should not be a substitute for reading God's own word to you in the Bible itself. And are, are you able to say, as Job did in Job 23:12, I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food? Can you imagine that? I have treasured the words of God's mouth more than my necessary food. You would rather read and meditate on the Bible than eat. Can't say that I'm there. But I'd like to be. And then the word of God reproves. 
The Word of God reproves you, reproves you by showing you where your life is not in line with what God desires for you. Are you one like Herod who refuses to listen to those reproofs, the corrections that God would bring into your life? Do you try to silence it, living life on your own terms? Or are you one who, like many in the crowd who came to John, when you hear the word of God reprove you, say, what then shall I do? What then shall I do? What a wonderful, powerful word of God we have been given in the Bible. The word of God still comes to us today as it did to John over 2,000 years ago, preparing, warning, transforming, pointing, reproving. Well, the word of God came to you this morning. And as I was preparing this message, I remembered back how the word of God first came to me in October 1973 as an 18-year-old college student, preparing my heart to see Jesus and my need for him. And that word has continued to come to me over these many years to draw me ever closer to Jesus. But you know, the word of God has come to you, Jim. The word of God has come to you, Helen. The word of God has come to you, Angie. The word of God has come to you, Scott, Mary Jo. The word of God has come to you, Nancy. Word of God has come to you, Candace. The Word of God has come to all of us. To all of us. What a blessed privilege to be able to say the Word of God came to me, came to you. The Word of God comes to common, ordinary people in common, ordinary places. In just a moment, we'll have a chance for silent reflection in response to this message. And I suggest two areas to reflect upon. The first is gratitude. You see, God is not hiding. He wants to be known by you. He has revealed himself in his word so that you may know him better and better. May we express gratitude to God for the word of God, the Bible that has come to you and is at work in you to draw you into a deeper relationship with Jesus. And the other is growth. Don't let yourself be satisfied with what you know of God today. Ask God to increase your thirst for him and his word so that you may grow to love him more and more as he reveals himself to you in his word. The word of God has come to us. The word of God has come to us. Let's be grateful and let's desire to know him more. So let's spend just a few moments in silent reflection as we reflect on the things that you've heard this morning and particularly focusing on what it means to be grateful for the word of God, what it means to continue to want to grow to know God better. And when that period of reflection is over, I'll close in prayer.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity to sit here and say that the word of God has come to us this morning through these verses in Luke chapter 3. And I trust that by the power of your spirit, there would be something here for each of us, whether we need to hear of the preparing, the warning, the transforming, the pointing or reproving, whatever it is, we know that your spirit can open our eyes to see these things and that your word can transform us to be like you. And I pray that you would do so. Help us to be grateful for this word of God that has come to us and help us to be willing to continue to grow, to know you better. Help us not to be satisfied with how much we know you now, but desire more and more of you as we go through life. We look forward to that time when we will know you as we have been known. But until that time, I pray that we would search for you in your word and come to know you more and more and let that knowledge of you transform our lives that we can become the people that you would have us to be. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to the communion, the Lord's Supper, we have talked about the living word, or the written word today. Now we will focus on the living word, Jesus Christ, who died for us, who was raised from the dead to give us new life. And as we focus on him during this communion time, may you further bless us and increase our gratitude for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> 